Grab a copy of the Bible this morning. We're going to turn open to the Gospel of Matthew. They're in the New Testament, the first book and the last portion of the Bible. Matthew. Matthew chapter 17 this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. Think upon this together this morning. Wonderful text. So let's pray before we open God's Word this morning. Father, open the eyes of our heart this morning. We might gaze upon the beauty of you, our Father in heaven, Christ our Savior. The Spirit, our one triune God. Teach us your ways. Show us yourself. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 17. We read verses 1 through 13 this morning. This is the holy and errant word of God. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. But did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. A number of pulpits that I've preached in over the years have had often something etched into them, some words, or they've had a plaque on them. And often it's on the front side of the the pulpit and pointed at the congregation. Think if I was going to put a plaque on this pulpit or 
at some words into this pulpit, it would probably sit right here across the top of, of the pulpit so that I could see it. And it would be from John chapter 12, specifically John chapter 12, verse 21. In that text, there are some Greek men who come to Philip. No doubt their last name was probably Helopolis. That may be reading into the text, but I think probably one of my relatives was there. And went to Philip. And they just say some very simple words. They say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's the longing of the human soul. That's what everyone is seeking, though they may not understand it or may not comprehend it. They may have never heard that phrase before. To see Jesus. You know, the disciples at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, they think they have seen Jesus, and they have seen Jesus. There's no doubt about that. They've been walking with Him for three years. Uh, Peter will even get to the place in just this previous chapter that we looked at where he recognizes that Jesus is the Christ, he says, the Son of the living God. And yet here this morning they are going to see Jesus in a new way. They're going to truly see Jesus. They're going to see the glory of Christ, and in that they are going to see the beauty of Christ and the holiness of Christ and the loving grace of Christ. There's no more beautiful picture, there's no more needful picture for you and I to take in than a sight of Christ's glory. That's what we long for. That's what I want to look at this morning. First, the glory of Christ, and then that we're going to see second, the beauty of Christ, and then third, we're going to see the holiness of Christ, and then fourth, we're going to see the loving grace of Christ. I want you to remember the context here. As I just mentioned, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Christ. He makes that bold profession, and then you will remember that Jesus immediately on the heels of that tells the disciples that He must suffer and that He must die and that He must be resurrected on the third day. And you remember that Peter is so stunned by this that he will take Jesus aside and he will rebuke him. And Jesus will then strongly rebuke Peter. There's tension in the air. And then Jesus will inform them that it's not only he who must bear his cross, but they also have a cross to bear. And every disciple of Jesus must bear We looked at that last week, and those are some very heavy words. You could even say that they're hard words. But Jesus, as he tells his disciples that they also must bear a cross, and after he has just rebuked Peter, and after he has just spoken about his own cross bearing, he says there in verse 28, he gives them some encouraging words. 
says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. He's, he's comforting the disciples. Christ never leaves His people without hope, or without encouragement, never. And so He gave them this promise. But now they wait. Matthew tells us here in the first verse of chapter 17 that they've been waiting for six days. He says, and after six days. Matthew doesn't usually use phrases like this. He doesn't keep time like this for us. But he does here, no doubt because the tension was high. Those were a long six days. You know this when you've gotten into a heated exchange with someone in your workplace or in your home, it just feels like there is a cloud over everything and until that tension is relieved. And he's promised them that they are going to see his kingdom. But now they've been waiting for six days and they haven't seen what he has promised. Matthew was part of this group of disciples. and No doubt it was a long six days for him. But now the six days are up. Jesus takes Peter, and he takes John, and he takes James, that inner circle of disciples. And Matthew tells us that he takes them up on a high mountain. It was most likely night, because in the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that the disciples were sleepy. He even infers that they fell asleep. And when they awoke, they awoke to a sight that they would never forget. They saw Jesus literally in a whole new light. We've come to call this event the, the transfiguration. Matthew tells us that Jesus was transfigured or transformed. He uses the Greek word metamorpho, which we get the word metamorphosis from Transfigure, transform. And when they awake, they see Jesus transformed. This man that they've walked with for three years, Peter has called him the Christ, but now they see him even more fully. Well, what did they see? Well, we don't know everything that they saw in that moment. But Matthew tells us that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Luke tells us that his face became, quote, other, end quote. Matthew tells us that it wasn't just Jesus' face that shone, but, but his clothing became radiant. White as light, he says. A brilliance that would have been unmistakable. Remember, it was night. What were they seeing when they saw this? Well, they were seeing Christ in His glory. The Son of God in His glory. Why? Why does Jesus take them up there to show them this? A great part of the reason is so that these disciples might be encouraged. So they might be given hope. He wants to give them a glimpse of the glory that is His and the glory that will be theirs 
after He carries His cross, they will see Him in that glory. And after they carry their crosses, they will enjoy that glory. It is revelatory. Slight, gracious preview of Christ's exaltation, what He will look like in heaven. Now, this glory wasn't something new to Christ before this moment. This wasn't a foreign garment. It wasn't like He was putting on His Father's coat and it was too big for Him. No, it fit perfectly because it was His and it's always been His. He makes it clear in John 17 when he prays to his father that he says to his father that this glory from all of eternity that has been his, he said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He says to his father, he prays to his father, and then he says this, and now, father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's God of God. Light of light. And why didn't he show it before? Because the Son and what we call the state of his humiliation when he became flesh, he chose to shroud his glory. Paul will speak about this in Philippians 2 when he says that Christ emptied himself by becoming a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He, he shrouds his glory, but it is his glory. It hasn't left him. It never departed from him. It wasn't foreign to him. He is light of light. It was his. He is very God of very God. And the disciples on that mountain are now seeing Christ in his glory. And it's unmistakable. He is the eternal Son of God. And they look... He isn't alone there in his glory. You see him standing there with two figures, Moses and Elijah. This is a side point, but I find it fascinating that they didn't need introductions. They recognized Moses as Moses. They recognized Elijah as Elijah. And of course, Peter and Paul and James wouldn't have known them. They lived hundreds of years, centuries before they were born. So, could it be when we are in glory that every name that is written in the Lamb's book of life, every person that is in glory shall be known by everyone else? I think most likely we won't need name tags in heaven. They're there. They're there bodily, Moses and Elijah. And they are wrapped in glory. These two great heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah. Why these two, though? It's a good question. I would have thought Abraham and David, maybe. But it's Moses and Elijah. And there's a reason for that. It's because Moses 
the great author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. He's the great deliverer of God's people from Egypt, but he represents the law. And then you have Elijah, the, the great prophet, the prophet who was also a great deliverer of God's people. He didn't allow the people of Israel in that time when truly the people of faith were threatened to disappear and bow their knee to Baal and a false god. He delivers them. The prophet of prophets. And so here you have standing with Jesus, embodied the law and the prophets. The whole of the Old Testament. And what are they doing when they stand there together? Well, Luke tells us that they were counseling together, they were meeting together, and they were talking. And what were they talking about, Luke? Luke tells us in his gospel that they were discussing Jesus' departure. The word that's used there is literally the word exodus. They're discussing his exodus, the cross. And no doubt this was to encourage Jesus. This was to affirm him as he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem and, and marched that path down to the cross. It also served as a great reminder and great encouragement to those disciples that are standing there. When Peter sees Jesus in glory, he, he makes the understatement of his life. He says, it's good to be here. You think, Peter? It's good to be here. And then he, he fumbles. He's never been in a place like this before. And so he, out of desperation, kind of appeals to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, if you wish, Jesus, I'll make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We'll just kind of camp out here forever. It'll be kind of like a, a spiritual woodstock, a spiritual lollapalooza. We'll just camp out here forever. I love verse 5 tells us that, quote, as he was still speaking, the cloud descends upon the mountaintop and it envelops them, a bright cloud, and a voice sounds forth from the cloud. It's meant to remind us of Moses on Mount Sinai there in Exodus 24, and there Moses hears a voice. And that voice speaks to him and gives him the law for the people. And here in the transfiguration, we have the mountaintop, we have the cloud, and we have the voice. But there aren't multiple commandments given. There's one. One command. First, gives a declaration. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then you're ready for the commandment. Listen to him. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah, they're giants of the Christian faith. And yet they're less than Jesus. 
Jesus is greater than Moses. There's no message from the mountain other than listen to him. He's not like Moses who comes down with all of these words that have been given to him that then he must give to others. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. And the transfiguration is a glimpse of Christ's glory so that you and I and the disciples might understand that. The writer of Hebrews understood that. He opens his New Testament book in this very way. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. No doubt it's the transfiguration that's going through his mind when he writes those words. He's the final word. As D.A. Carson said, even Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, assume supporting roles where he is concerned. Listen to him, says the Father. And when the disciples get off their faces and they raise their eyes, they see nothing but Jesus left. He alone is left. And as Carson says, that is pregnant with meaning. He's what you need. He's what you need to see. He's what you need to hear. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I want to look a little closer at this revelation of the glory that's revealed on this mountaintop. And in it, I want us to see the beauty of Christ. I want us to see the holiness of Christ. And I want us to see that loving grace of Christ here from this text. First, we have the beauty of Christ. When we see the glory of Christ, we're drawn to it. There, there's, a, there's a drawing power in seeing Christ. And you see it here in the text. There's a fullness there that we want to enjoy. Peter is ready to camp out for all of eternity. And you have to like something an awful lot to want to camp for all of eternity. What is it? Well, they've encountered the beauty of Christ. Peter thinks he's ready to dwell in the divine presence. This is the great longing of every soul to see the, the glory of Christ, the beauty and the glory of our God, and to dwell in his midst forever. We want that. Every soul wants that. Just doesn't always know it. Because there is life, and there is life abundant, and there is life full. The great goal of all mankind is to dwell with God, to be in His presence. One thing have I asked of the Lord, the psalmist says, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, why to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His holy temple? Here is life. It's only as we dwell in the presence of God 
only as we're enjoying sweet communion with our glorious God that we as image bearers of God find our true fulfillment. What we lost in the garden was not only God but our own humanity. And you're seeing that this week. We were created for Him. There's a beauty in Him that just that beckons us to come to Him. So it's no surprise that when Peter encounters this beauty that he's ready to set up tents and camp forever. But there's a problem. There's been a perennial problem. How can mankind who has fallen, who dwells in sin, dwell in the divine presence? what we lost in the garden was His divine presence. We were barred from the divine presence. They were cast out of the garden and the cherubim were put in front of the gates of that garden to, to keep them away from that intimate knowledge of the divine presence. When the voice sounds from the cloud, Peter's mouth is shut. He's still speaking, verse 5. God cuts him off. And the disciples are forced to recognize the otherness, the holiness of Christ. The voice thunders. The voice of the psalmist says, breaks the trees of Lebanon that rolls over the waters. And the disciples, when they hear that voice, they fall on their faces. Yes, the beauty of Christ is indescribable, but so is His holiness. They are drawn to Him and they shrink from Him. There's both a pull and there is a push with our God. Matthew says, quote, they were terrified. Terrified. The word terrified can be what we often speak of as fear, as being that kind of awe, or that kind of being struck with majesty, but that's not what's happening here. That's not how that word's being used here. They're scared. They're afraid. I love how the King James translates it. It says they were sore afraid. That is, they were severely afraid. They were body aching afraid. Sore afraid. Isaiah sees the Lord and His glory there. And Isaiah 6, he sees the train of His robe fill the temple, and he sees the seraphim hovering over the Lord. And he hears them saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And it's the same thing the voice sounds. Isaiah says that the foundations of the threshold shook at the sound of his voice. And he says immediately, 
Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There is terror before a holy God. Yes, Jesus is beautiful in his glory. And he is terrifying in his glory. He is holy, holy, holy. Such an encounter stops Peter even as it stopped Isaiah. He hears that voice and he's shaken out of it. Holy, holy. God, God. cringe when people are casual about God. None will be when they see Him in His glory. Hubris will be replaced with humility. None will stand before Him. All will fall before Him. All, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess He is not like us. He's wholly different. beautiful beyond beautiful and he is equally holy beyond holy so the perennial question the question since the garden how how does sinful man who is not beautiful who is not holy dwell in the presence of the divine we're drawn to him we feel ourselves drawn to him, and yet we also feel ourselves shrink from him. But here is that other wonderful attribute woven into this text. We see his gracious love. As it were, bridges what is seemingly a paradoxical divide. Verse 7, but Jesus. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Isn't it interesting that Moses and Elijah, they don't come over to the disciples and try and encourage them and tell them to stand up and to look once again at Christ? Jesus alone is left because he alone is the answer. The touch of Christ takes away all fear, and it's only the touch of Christ that takes away all fear in the presence of God. They've seen him in his divine glory, and now he touches them in his humanity. It's a living picture, dear disciples. You need not fear, for the God-man is your mediator. This is the answer to the perennial question. How can sinful man dwell in the presence of the divine? Only through the God-man mediator. Only through the one who is both beautiful and holy and who extends his loving grace to us. And meets us where we are at. Embraces us. 
thinking a lot over these weeks about as we are in this lockdown. And there, there is this, we all feel it, even when you're out in public and you're in the grocery store and people are wearing masks and people are trying to avoid one another in the aisle. It just feels this, this alienation. This, we can't touch each other. We can't even smile at each other. Beyond their face and terror. But you as God of gods. And man of man. Comes over and touches them. And no doubt smiles upon them. Don't be afraid. Stand up. Stand in the presence of your holy God. How would he accomplish that? Not by staying on the mountaintop with Moses and Elijah. No, he had to descend to Jerusalem. That he might go up another mountain, Mount Calvary. The Mount of Transfiguration is only understandable in the light of the hilltop of Calvary. N.T. Wright has made this point. I wouldn't recommend everything he has written or everything that he has said, but his thoughts on the relationship between the two here are absolutely golden. He commented that we should keep both in mind when we're thinking upon the other one of them. On the mountain, Jesus is revealed in glory. On the hill outside of Jerusalem, he's revealed in shame. Here he has clothes shining white. There they have been stripped off. Here he is flanked by Moses and Elijah, two of the great heroes of Israel. There he is flanked by two robbers showing the level to which Israel had sunk in rebellion. Here is a bright cloud that overshadows him. There darkness comes upon the land. Here, Peter blurts out how wonderful it all is. There, he is hiding in shame after denying he even knew Jesus. And I would add here, a voice from God himself declares that this is his wonderful son. And there, the voice of God is silent. Mountaintop explains the hilltop and vice versa. We are to see glory in the cross and the cross in the glory. They are eternally tied together. And it's only, it's only because both realities are true that we can forever dwell in the presence of our living He who is forever glorious, who is the definition of beauty, the standard of holiness, acted in gracious love towards us. He brings us into the divine presence for all of eternity. It shouldn't surprise us that these three disciples the rest of their lives were lived in light of what they saw. 
James will give his life as an early martyr of the faith. And no doubt, he was willing to bear that cross because of what he saw. I think we can make that assumption because of the impact that it had upon John and Peter. It's inescapable. John will say in John 1, and speaking about this moment, he will say, We have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter, in Second Peter, will say, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. They couldn't forget it. Their entire lives were shaped by it and informed by it. And motivated by it. And yet, they only had a slight glimpse of his glory. No eye hath seen, we are told, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Dear disciples, when we see Christ in all his glory, we will not walk away disappointed. And we will not be disappointed that we picked up our cross daily and followed after him. We will not be disappointed in that moment, and we won't be disappointed in the next moment, or next moment after that, or the day after that, or the day after that, or the day after that, for all of eternity. Son of God, as your Christ, and you will see him in glory because he is yours. Beauty, holiness, and gracious love are yours forever. And we will join before that throne with all the angels and the archangels and the rest of the saints, some that are even there now. We'll join in that song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Would you live with glory in view? We look out at the world around us and we remind ourselves that all of these people created in the image of God, the longing of their soul, though they may not understand, to see Christ. May that shape our living. May that shape our praying. May that shape our acting. May that shape our vision and our focus for this day until we reach glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise. You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are one triune God. You who are wrapped in light, 
You who are glorious beyond glorious, beautiful beyond beautiful, holy beyond holy, lovingly gracious beyond lovingly gracious. How can we not worship such a God? How can we not present our bodies as a living sacrifice to you? Oh, help us to live more with your glory in view. And to focus our eyes upon the things of heaven and not on earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.